Hello, this is The Checkpoint. I'm Anna Cunningham in London. And I'm Linda Freund in Barcelona. We're glad you're with us. Now, for those of you who are regular listeners, you may have wondered where we've been. Well, we took a little podcast recording break between our last episode and this one. Yes, there's been a lot going on, not just in our lives as parents as we work our way through this pandemic, but a lot that's been happening around the world. And we wanted to take time to be able to reflect that here. Linda and I started The Checkpoint really as a podcast for parents to speak out and share their worries and hopes with other parents across the globe during this pandemic. It has truly been a really uncertain time for us all as parents. And our hope has always been to create a space, not for answers, because unfortunately we don't have all of those, but more for questions. And we've been so moved by the experiences that you've shared from different corners of the world. And we know that parents are still very concerned about coronavirus. The pandemic is far from over, with infection rates rising in developing regions. So next week, we'll hear from mums in Mexico, Nepal and India about their experiences. This week, we're expanding our usual focus on coronavirus to look at what's happened in the United States and the global ripple effects following the killing of George Floyd in police custody. Today's program will be a space for parents to open up on the pervasiveness of racism and police brutality worldwide. We're parenting the next generation and have a responsibility the world over to have conversations with our children and each other about race. Black Lives Matter. Black families matter. So join us as we hear from families in the US and Europe about their struggles and hopes in a world questioning its past actions, present attitudes and poised for change. But let us be clear on why we're here. This is not just about police brutality. This is about generations of systematic oppression against black and brown people across this country. When the knee went down on George Floyd, it was like the knee that goes down on all of our beautiful black babies that go to schools that do not properly educate them. It was about the knee going down on all of the brothers and sisters that go to work 40 hours a week and still can't afford to take care of their families. It was the knee going down on all of the black brothers and sisters across this country who can't afford quality health care. This is not just about one situation, this is about a situation of oppression that has been happening to black and brown people across this country for far too long. And as Fannie Lou Hamer said, sometimes you get sick and tired of being sick and tired. That's the voice of Jordan Harris, a member of the Pennsylvania House of Representatives, speaking at a recent march in Philadelphia. This is one of several demonstrations happening in all 50 U.S. states. And in more than 50 countries across the world. Protesters in London chanting Black Lives Matter. Protesters in Amsterdam chanting I Can't Breathe. From Germany to India and Israel to Australia, George Floyd's death by a white police officer has also become a catalyst for conversations about racism in both the US and abroad. Christopher McDonald is a dad based in Los Angeles, California. He joins the checkpoint to share his thoughts on parenting during this time. Since I'm in Los Angeles, the protests were really up and going strong and they were pretty heavy. So this is something 
that was very cognizant for my seven-year-old son, Ellison, and there's something that he was very aware of and something I had to make very clear to him about what was happening. Now, this isn't a strange conversation to have with my son because my son is going to eventually be a black male like myself in the United States. So since he was three years old, I've had very open dialogue and conversation, transparent conversation with him about what he should expect when he gets older and when he is a black man. Uh, one thing that I have to point out regarding my son, because this is very interesting to his well-being and his story, is he is a biracial kid. His mother is white of European descent. She's Norwegian and Swiss uh, mix. And, uh, and so, yeah, so my son's biracial. He's black and white mixed. But if you know anything about race relations, especially when it comes to the United States, he will be considered a black male no matter what just the pigment of his skin and he has the nose and the lips and he looks just like a lighter skinned black male, lighter skinned version of myself. And no matter what, he would be considered black. And which is fine, because this, this is another thing that I've had a conversation with him, with him about. If you were to come to my son and ask him, hey, what are you? Nine times out of 10, he will tell you that he's black because he knows this, he knows this is what he should expect. Now, everyone knows the protests right now are because of uh, a lot of things, but mainly the systemic treatment that black individuals have gotten in this country, especially when it comes to police enforcement. I've had my own share of discriminations and uh, racist profiling coming up, especially in adulthood. From the time that I moved to Los Angeles, one in particular that stands out amongst the many is I didn't start drinking alcohol until I was 28. It's just something, it's a choice I had, I just never did. So I was coming back from a bar when I was around 25 and I was driving in my car. And I had heard of what happens in Los Angeles with the police a lot. And I was driving in the car, police car pulled up next to me. Two officers looked my way and they clearly saw that I was a black male just driving at night, doing anything else wrong, just driving. So they saw me, they looked at me and they decided to pull behind me and turn on their lights and they pulled me over. So I got off the freeway and I pulled over to the side of the street Keep in mind, I know very well what happens in this city, uh, Los Angeles, when it comes to cops and black males. So I was terrified, but I kept my hands on the steering wheel. They walked up, and without even telling me what was wrong, they asked me to step out of the car. So I stepped out of the car. I wasn't about to argue. I stepped out, and they made me do a sobriety walk. Sobriety walk uh, to testify I'd been drinking. And I told them, so you know what? I, you actually pulled over the one guy in this city who doesn't drink. So we'll, we'll be the judge of that. And they probably made me do that walk and test and to the alphabet backwards, everything you could possibly think of for the next 30 minutes, which is a very long time to determine if someone was drunk. And they knew clearly I was not drunk by 10 seconds into that sobriety test. But that's what they did, and they harassed me, they kept me in my car, they kept my ID for a subsequent 15 minutes for whatever reason. And that's just a minor version of what happened to me here in this city. The other stuff I don't want to get into because it's kind of it's going to dig up some old feelings. But these are things I'm aware of. These are things that I want my son to be aware of. Uh, and these are things that I tell him that he, sadly enough, may have to expect this in this city and in this country because he will be a black male. And that's just from my based on my experience, just that one example I've shared. Uh, there have been about 30 of those with me, unfortunately enough. And never in any incident, uh, in any of those cases, did I do anything wrong that warranted being pulled over and being harassed. But the good news is, based on 
the global response to what happened to George Floyd, we all saw it on tape, on video, four police officers were involved in his, I will call it what it is, murder. And then the day before with Amy Cooper threatening a man with her white privilege, knowing that the result may be, oh, the cops will come and arrest this black man who she was saying was threatening her, who was not threatening her, and eventually he may be killed. So we saw that played out the next day. It was the perfect cocktail. Which leads me back to the protests. I never in a million years, ever in my lifetime, would ever think of the world, people in Germany, people in Paris, people in India, people just all over the globe outside the United States, everyone in, people in all 50 states protesting the unlawful treatment of black people when it comes to the police. So who knows? I may have to restructure my conversation with my son and say, hey, look, we're living in a world where you may not have to worry about being harassed by the police as a black man. I don't know if we'll ever get there, but it gives me hope to see that people, you know, rallying around each other and protesting something that's unlawful and just quite wrong. And it's long overdue, but it's great to see this happening. And it's, it, it's, it's to me, I'm blown away. I look at my son and I see hope. I see how he is with his friends of different color. And it's a reminder of this is a conversation I'm forced to have with my son because he's going to be a black male. But this is something I've always said all along is that this isn't just a conversation black men should have with their black sons. This is a conversation that white fathers and white mothers and Asian mothers and Asian fathers, everyone just globally, in order to attack racism and attack people who are going to be disenfranchised as a result of racism, we all have to rally together and have this open dialogue with our kids. The coronavirus pandemic has left more than 100,000 dead in the U.S. and has struck African-American communities disproportionately harder. According to new data from the COVID tracking project, African-Americans are dying at a rate of nearly two times higher than their fellow Americans. In addition to the current delicate conversations about COVID-19, Black parents across the world are having difficult conversations with their kids every day about racism and how to stay safe if they encounter police. We'd like to play a clip of one of those conversations, courtesy of the YouTube channel, Cut. We actually have a line that we do at our house. We practice this thing. What is it? I'm Ariel Sky Williams. I'm eight years old. I'm unarmed and I have nothing that will hurt you. It's just kind of a thing we practice at our house. I remember being put in handcuffs for something that had nothing to do with me. I was literally walking in the mall. Cops slammed me on the ground, busted my lip, chipped my tooth. That actually made me really mad. I got tased that time. That time they tased me because they said I wasn't complying. What's wrong, baby? Okay, I'm alive, all right? Every day I get to see you, I get to do this, right? That was the voice of eight-year-old Ariel and her dad on Cut, a YouTube publisher. We've posted the full video link on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. (laughs) 
Here in the UK, protesters have defied calls to avoid mass gatherings and gathered in tens of thousands across the country to not only condemn police violence against African-Americans, but also to call attention to the long-standing issues of racism in British society. A friend of the checkpoint, Abiola Okubanjo, is a mum of three from London. She runs a social enterprise and a pharmaceutical company that promotes blood, stem cell and organ donations in the black and Asian communities. She has shared her thoughts with us here at the checkpoint. When I hear that somebody kneels on someone's neck, feels them struggle, then feels them stop struggling, but still kneels on their neck, I think, what, what, do, what does that sort of person see? when they see my husband, when they see my brother, when they see my sons. What level of humanity has gone out of that person that they can look at my family, people that look like me, came out of my body, that can make them think it's okay to do that, to treat someone like an inanimate object, like, you know, dispassionately, I'm just going to do this. I can see that this person is dying. I am so removed from the suffering of this person that it's nothing to me to watch this person suffer. And I'm going to be the cause of that. And you see, it was so chilling in the video that, you know, the person took of George Floyd. The people who did that to him, they knew they were being filmed. But they did it anyway. They just, they knew they were going to get away with it. And George Floyd was nothing to them, was a nobody, was the dirt beneath their feet that they felt that they could do that to him. They didn't even try to hide it. The lady who filmed it was a teenager and she had with her her nine-year-old cousin. They did that in front of a teenager and a nine-year-old girl. Who does that? How, what system allows that to happen? We think, okay, the system in America, but actually that's the same system we have here. We still have a police force that thinks that's okay. That's the country that I live in. What really brings it home to me is when you realise that this has been going on for a long time. Since about 1969, there have been, I don't actually know the numbers, but there have been a lot of people dying in custody, black people dying in custody, and no one has been convicted. Nobody, ever. Not a single policeman, which is very similar to America. But in the UK, nobody. Nobody's been charged. Nobody's definitely, nobody's been convicted. And what's been happening in the UK has been happening recently in the UK. I'm just going to drop a couple of names in a couple of years. So 1988, we had Christopher Alder. In um, 2011, Mark Dugan in Tottenham. He was 29 years old. 2015, Shaku Boya, he was 31 years old, I was in Scotland. 2017, Edwin da Costa, Beckton, that was in London again, not too far from where I am. 2017, Vishan Charles, he was 20 years old, Dalston. These are, these are young black men. And so when I think of those names and I read the stories, um, I see the pictures, I hear from witnesses or read the witness accounts of what happened... To other people, it's 
just a nameless black person in a hoodie or maybe not even wearing a hoodie but to me that's that's like my husband my brother my sons I have two sons that's that's them isn't it in what 10 15 years time this isn't just something happening in America this is something that happens here in UK in London northeast London east London where I live where I'm raising my children so what do I think about the protests in the UK? A long time in coming. No, actually, we've been protesting for a long time. But well deserved. What you're seeing is people who are angry. We're angry and we're tired. We are tired of this. In 2020, this should still not be going on. I think it it's t- yeah it's totally worth braving covid which one am i more scared of actually for my children is it covid you know according to you know some newspaper reports they're more likely to get struck by lightning than catch covid or is it policemen actually given that i have black kids it's policemen that's a horrible thought the people that are supposed to protect you are the people i'm supposed to tell my children to be worried about What do I tell these children? What do I tell them? Well, this is what I have been telling them. And they're still very, very young. I have to have that conversation with my children to tell them that what their white friends are doing when they're misbehaving, they cannot do. What's hijinks for their friends? What's, oh, just been boys for their friends? Could be a death sentence for them. So when I get called to school and the class teacher tells me, your son was messing around today. He was causing quite a disruption in the class. While I can chat to some of the other mothers at the school gates who heard that about their sons and we'll be like, oh, doesn't the teacher know boys will be boys? There's a part of me that's like, no, but my sons can't get away with that they're held to a different level of accountability but they're still just kids just like everybody else's child but I have to have a conversation with them and say they're going to view you differently and they do they do even teachers do you know the the facts are there there are studies on black boys being excluded from school disproportionately more why is that well it's to do with the stereotype of black men they're angry They're volatile, they're violent, they're strong. All of those sort of racial stereotypes, which, you know, sounds harmless, but actually it does lead to death, doesn't it? And it leads to not getting a job and it leads to being in the justice system and it leads to being expelled earlier. Because my children, as young as they are, clearly scare some of their teachers and clearly scare the education system, clearly scare policemen. And so it's incumbent on them to change who they are or to hold themselves to a different standard because people who are older than them and who should know better can't deal with them. So they have to be the ones to change themselves. That's not right, is it? Other things, I have to have a conversation with my boys about what they wear. We all talk about hoodies. Oh, don't wear a hoodie, you know, hug a hoodie. A hoodie's just a jumper, let's face it. It's just a piece of clothing. It's like trousers or a shirt. 
that should not be the reason why someone discriminates against you. But when my black boys or my brother, my nephews walk around town wearing a hoodie, apparently that scares other people enough that they can be treated badly just because they're wearing a hoodie. And so I have to tell my boys, you can't wear a hoodie. Not because there's anything intrinsically wrong with a a hood on a jumper. Yeah, it keeps your head warm, actually. But because other people can't cope with you wearing a jumper. That's too scary for everybody else to deal with, so you're not allowed to wear that. Oh, and that hairstyle that you want to have? I have to tell my children, you know what, you can't have that hairstyle. Because I decide to shave your hair in a certain way, you know, short back and sides, on black hair, oh, that scares somebody. That's far too dangerous a hairstyle for you. You can't have twists. You can't colour your hair. You can't wear an earring. You have to look harmless. You can't look dangerous because someone else might get scared. Because you chose a certain hairstyle. I have to make those decisions for my boys. They're just children. They're just babies. But even now, I have to make those decisions for them. And I have to say that to them. You know, and and I do it. Not because I believe that the hairstyle is anything. But because I know other people can't cope with that hairstyle. How stupid is that? A hairstyle. You're listening to Abiola Okubanjo, a mother of three in London. This is the Checkpoint Podcast. Next, Abiola shares her experiences with systemic racism during her career in the UK. So the experience for ethnic minorities in the UK is that you're always trying to fit in. You're always trying to play the game, a game that you've not been told the rules. And it's exhausting, actually. It's exhausting because it's a game you can't ever really win. Even when I was young, my parents had to sit me down and they, you know, and give me the talk. You do know, as a black person, you have to work 10 times as hard as a white person to get half as far. They said that to me as a young child. And of course, I was been very British. I was like, oh, well, you know, no, maybe, mum, that was you. You know, you were an immigrant, blah, 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 blah. That's not going to happen to me. Um, you know, we're different. We're younger, whatever. Then I get into the world of work and I see, oh, no, no, it's still happening. Not saying that I didn't do well in my career, but I do sometimes wonder, could I have done better? What opportunities did I miss? did I not have, were not presented to me? How much harder did I have to work than my colleagues? Now, when I was working, I remember on my floor, so I worked in, I was an investment banker, and on my floor, I don't know, how many people? 300, 500 people, who knows? I was the only black girl. And I think there might have been two, possibly three, no, no, probably just two of us, two, three of us that were black on the whole floor in investment banking. And then when I'm working late, that's when I see black people. Those will be the cleaners. 
Now, I was in banking and finance for years and I worked in different companies. That didn't change much. And it's not because I'm so clever, but I know that there were other clever black people and Asian people and Chinese people and mixed race people who could have done what I did. But I really had to pull it out of the bag to even get to where I went. And even when I was there, I knew that I wasn't going to get it as easy. It doesn't help that I was a girl, so I didn't play football. I didn't want to go to any strip clubs. Um, I didn't know how to... I couldn't ski. I didn't go sailing. And so that sometimes made the small talk difficult. And that sometimes made it harder for people to feel like they could go for a beer with me. And I wasn't much of a drinker either. And then, even though I did have those struggles, and I did manage to manage to do quite well, because I managed to do quite well, I sometimes got a fee at the table. I got a seat at the table. They were always telling me, you know, lean in. I mean, for women, but, you know, for black people to lean in, try and get a seat at the table, scramble your way to the top. But you know the challenge with that? When you get to the table and you are the only minority there, you, you feel like, dear Lord, I better preserve this. I don't want to do anything to jeopardise this position. And, and, it's, and everybody is, you feel that everyone's judging you because you're like, if I mess up, they're not going to let another black person on. And then you don't also want to be the only one speaking the black cause, you know, fight the power. You want to blend, don't you? You want to be inobtrusive. You don't want to upset the apple cart, so to speak. You kind of feel almost grateful that they allowed you to be on, even though you know that you deserve to be there. But there's a part of you that's like, oh, thank goodness that they allowed me into this place. Oh, my God. So you're careful what you say. And then don't forget the stereotype that black women have. Oh, we're all angry. Angry black woman. That's the trope, isn't it? That's the stereotype. You know, and there's a part of me that's like, yeah, I am angry. I'm angry because this is annoying. This is frustrating. This is unfair. Yes, of course I'm blimmin' angry. But you can't. You've got to smile and just be chilled. Don't upset anyone. But it's okay, actually, for my white male colleagues to be angry. I mean, they can stand and rant and rave. They can swear. They can sack people just like that. You know, oh, they're driven. Oh, yeah, has, he's got a lot of character. Oh, I like him. I like someone with character. But you do you be a, you know, a black person with character and see how far that takes you. Definitely don't be a black woman with character. You're an angry black woman. And then you get sent for disciplinary hearings and, oh, yes, she's just angry. You have to be careful. So if you're dealing with that in the workplace, you're dealing with going into a fancy shop and having the security man following you around or eyeing you. You're dealing with driving down the road and being very careful not to play your music too loud just in case. You're dealing with trying to fit in when you don't really buy into what everybody else is doing, but you have to just to play the game. It's tiring. It's really tiring. So when you do see a black person that has has achieved it, you're like, you've done well. You've done well because you've had a lot to do to get there. And so now when I look at my children and I think... God, all the stuff that's ahead of you, I'd better prepare you, right? That's the racism. The one that drains you. 
because you're constantly, constantly having to make up for the fact that you're Gulliver in Lilliput. There's got to be a way forward, hasn't there? We can talk about what makes us angry, what's going wrong. But what can make the future for my children, our children, better? I think it comes, or part of it, has got to be the education. I don't think children are born racist. You know, in fact, I know they're not born racist. Most children don't even see colour. Honestly, get a child who is young and still innocent and ask him to describe somebody else. He'll, they might describe the clothes, but they don't always talk about the colour unless you tell them that that's an issue. So somewhere along the line, someone is teaching those children how to view people who look different to them. What we can do with our education system and how society talks is don't make issues about Asian people or issues about black people something for black people and for Asian people to deal with. So that's why I really like that with the protest, we saw more white people protesting. <laughs> I wonder if that's why people are listening now. That's just my takeaway on that one. But the fact that white people are getting involved has made the issue not just, oh, it's those ethnic minorities, they're always whinging. It's made it about us. And now, actually, I, it makes me feel more hopeful, actually, because I'm seeing other people feeling the pain because it's happening to all of us. When we're at school, for instance, and we're teaching history or geography, let it be a bit more inclusive. When you're teaching about the First World War, you talk about the you know thousands of Asian people that fought for Britain thousands of Gurkhas, thousands of black people, Caribbeans, Africans who fought for the British. How about you teach that actually there have been black people in the UK since medieval times and it wasn't, you know, snowy white England, Windrush and oh my God, now we're overrun. No, black people have been here quite a while, but you don't talk about that. If you did then maybe all of the talk about, oh, go home, go back to where you're from, might just disappear a bit. How about we talk about Africa pre-colonialism? So that when my children are in their history lesson and they talk about black people, it's not just slavery. Because I have to say, I remember being in my history lesson as a young child, learning about slavery. That was an awful experience. Can you imagine? You're the only person of that colour and they're talking about your people being killed, being shipped off, being raped. I mean, pictures of, you know, bare-breasted African women in chains and you're the only black girl in the room. That's not nice. I'm not saying don't talk about it, but you can... You can level it up by talking about how we've had a long history before colonialism, how we, you know, we had our own kings and tribes and, you know, we had our architecture and, you know, we were smart people and we weren't just these dumb people who the British came over and, you know, rounded us up because we didn't have guns and look how rubbish we were. You know, if you give a balanced history, then 
it makes black people proud of who they are. I want my children to be proud of who they are. Thank you to all the parents who joined us this week. If you have some thoughts to share, you too can get in contact with us on our Facebook page or find us on Twitter or drop us an email at mycheckpointpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you as always for being part of the podcast. We love connecting parents from across the globe. In recent weeks, thousands of protesters marched in cities across Denmark to demand racial justice. Their call to action? For people to take measures to root out systemic racism in both Denmark and the U.S. We now turn to Judy Wanjiko Janssen, a mother of two young boys in Denmark, to share her experience with racism in this country. So my name is Judy. I'm a Kenyan living in Denmark. I have two children and I'm married to Aden. First off, I decided to name my children Swahili names, even though their dad is Danish, because I knew that giving them um, names that they could relate to or rather they could reflect on as part of their identity was a big deal in shaping who they are because I, it's very important for me that my children can connect and are able to know both roots, their Kenyan roots and their Danish roots. And I know that because we are living in Denmark, it's very easy for their Kenyan side to be overshadowed by the Danish side. And I think that is unfair. I think children benefit more by having the best of both worlds. And so I wouldn't want to deny my children that part of their identity, the Kenyan part of their identity. And so by giving them Swahili names, that was my first step in making sure that they have something about them that they can always connect to their identity as, you know, as Kenyans. And it was a big challenge for us when we, you know, because I had my first son in Kenya and my other son, I had him in Denmark. And so when we decided, as I had done with my first son, we gave my second son a Swahili name. And then in Denmark, when you give a child a name, it has to go through the system to be approved. And we did not know that this was our first hurdle in dealing with this, you know, like Denmark is a small country, is a country of about, you know, less than six million and there's such deep hegemony that there's a set of names that are so common and people keep reusing them and have been reusing them over, you know, over generations. And the same applies also for immigrants. And so here I come and, and you know, uh, my husband and I agreed that we're going to give our son a Swahili name. And so when we gave him this Swahili name, um, we called him Faraji. We thought it would just be automatic, as it had been with, with our elder son, who was called Fadili. But it so happened that once we submitted the name, um, it had to be, you know, it had to go into the system, and we had to justify why we are giving him this name and what it means. And, of course, we had all, all the right justification. I'd done my research. I knew what this name, because... 
this name means because in my culture it's very important that the name you give a child you know sort of represents the child's character and it's sort of a blessing upon which you bestow on a child but that was not enough you know it took nearly seven months for them to approve my child's name all along for those seven months he did not have a name and that was my first instance of you know feeling different and knowing that there were certain things that I would have to fight for because it feels good for me or it feels right and it's what we need to do as a family it's not generally acceptable um, in society and so I had to I have to fight and I have to push my way into into sort of justifying why I need to call my children by their Swahili names. And so after seven months, we got the name approved. And so now um, my sons have are the only ones who go by their names in a country of, yeah, like I said, less than six million people. And they're very proud about it. Now they keep telling me that, Mommy, thank you for giving me these names because it's such a wonderful name. And, you know, they are aware that it's unique. But I'm deeply conscious of the fact that I'm raising, you know, brown kids. And in that comes its own set of challenges. There's so much hegemony here and much much of the population looks alike. And so any difference is sort of met with raised eyebrows. I've had instances of the teachers telling me that I need to speak you know, Danish to my children and not speak English or my, you know, Swahili or my vernacular Kikuyu. And I've had again to stand up for myself and say that I decide which language I want to to speak to my children. I decide what I want to do because I am their parent and I they are learning Danish in school and we speak Danish at home, but I want them to also learn my languages. You know, this is the difference between me being sort of an immigrant and and a Danish parent, they do not have to constantly justify their choices in raising their children. But I have to keep justifying my choices. And it's really, it really can be exhausting and discouraging when you, you know what you're doing is right, but then someone else keeps questioning, why are you doing this? Why are you speaking your language to your child? And, you know, that's that's the part where when we hear about white privilege, that is white privilege, that that person feels that their way of doing things or their way of naming is the proper way. But then for someone else as an immigrant or as, an, or as a black parent, I have to justify. I have to use extra energy. I have to go for seven months without a name for my child. I know the world looks at my children and sees brown children. And that's just how the world sees, you know, that's how the world sees race. But for me, it's very important that when I'm raising my children, that they do not have to pick a side. They do not have to say that we are white or we are brown. It's that they're human and they have they can be in the middle and blossom in the middle. That was Judy Wanjiko Janssen, a mother of two in Denmark. And now we turn to Evadne Campbell, the co-founder of Shiloh PR, a specialist PR and media training company. She's also a mother and a grandmother, and she shared her thoughts with us on the checkpoint and her hopes for the future. I don't even know where to start because at the moment there is so much going on. We were all having to deal with the pandemic and what 
that means to us as um, people, me, as a parent and a grandparent, not being able to see my son and my grandsons, that was um, challenging enough. But now dealing with the uh, Black Lives Matter campaign and all that entails, as a black woman who has a black son and now two mixed heritage grandchildren who in all intents and purposes, everyone will see as young black men as they grow up. I can only say that I'm thankful for this campaign. I'm thankful for the fact that it is um, not only being fought by black people and not only being fought in the United States where the trigger of George Floyd's death led to the campaign, it is a worldwide drive. And as someone who has been involved in activism over the years and who is passionate about equality, I am thrilled to see the world coming on board and saying, enough is enough. I talked to my son at length about the issues around race. He's having to have the same conversation with his partner, who is white British and with all intents and purposes, very well-meaning and is an amazing young woman, but had no concept of the depth of racism or the issues that my son, her partner, has had to deal with and navigate. And in particular now, what the future for her sons could be if we don't deal with this. So for me, this is a really difficult time. I'm hopeful, I'm hopeful that we'll get through this pandemic as better people, kinder, more caring towards each other. But as a black woman, I am hopeful beyond comprehension that this is a turning point and that there will be um, equality and people will be treated fairly irrespective of the color of their skin. I am thankful, I am positive, I am hopeful, and I am just grateful that my grandchildren, my grandsons may well be growing up into a world where they are not just judged or not um, unfairly judged by the color of their skins. Thanks to the parents who shared their voices here on The Checkpoint. Next week, we'll hear from more parents across the world on what they're going through during this time. From this mom in Nepal. Last week, one of my family members passed away. All the responsibilities are on me now, and which is making me more difficult to keep my eyes on my kid. To this mom in India. It has been quite isolating for children. Uh, they're bored, they're anxious. So using stories gives them ways to cope with the situation. We hope you'll tune in to listen and we'll continue to hear from parents across the world about their experiences with racism. We'll be back, but for now, for me, Linda, in Barcelona. And me, Anna, in London. Stay safe. 
and let's keep the important conversations going.